I think that um, we need mass mental health. In general, we have a mental health crisis all over the world, and I think you can see that in America, that under stress, under economic stress, or stress of a war or invasion, or stress of coronavirus, or background stress of global warming, to the extent that people are empathic at all, that people shut down rationality and are motivated more and more by kind of irrational factors. So we need mass mental health. And not all these people that are subject to this stress and, you know, have a diagnosis of PTSD or necessarily a diagnosis of depression or anxiety. But we all have sort of low level aspects of that. And some of us have higher levels. So there still is that that part about um, still bringing people back to normal. But I think taking healthy people and making them healthier or optimization, I think that that's essential. Hello, hello. Welcome back, Neurohacker community, to episode number 70 of our podcast. Today, Rick Doblin joins us. He is the founder and executive director of MAPS, the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies. This episode is all about the history of psychedelics, the latest research, and what we can expect for the future. For details on this episode, go to neurohacker.com podcast. You'll get a summary of our show, the full transcript, and can join in the conversation in the comments. We have exciting news at Neurohacker Collective. Our latest product, Qualia Night, is going to be available in just a few weeks. It's an entirely new approach to addressing sleep. Rather than the standard approach that largely orients around providing sedation shortly before bed, our product is intended to be taken around dinner time and focuses on optimizing the restorative properties of sleep. This unique patent pending formula gives your body what it needs to have a relaxing evening and deep, refreshing sleep. Sign up at neurohacker.com to be the first to know when the product is released. Without further ado, let's jump into the show. Here's Heather and Rick. Welcome to Collective Insights. I'm your host today, Dr. Heather Sanderson, and I have the privilege of being joined by Rick Doblin, the founder of MAPS. Rick, thanks so much for being here today with us. Well, Heather, thank you so much. I'm really glad to be able to speak with you today. And I really believe that uh, public education is the crucial issue in the mainstreaming of psychedelics. So I'm just especially glad to be working with you on that. What inspired you to create MAPS? <laughs> Well, that's um, a long story, but I'll try to make it shorter. Um, what inspired me to join MAPS, um, so I, I started, I mean, I started MAPS in 86. The real inspiration came to me in 1972 when I was 18 years old. And that was that I had been um, very uh, tuned in through my family to, who were very progressive politically to a lot of the injustices of the world. And in particular, educated a lot about the Holocaust and about how people can be dehumanized by others, the irrational can overwhelm rational thinking and how people are always looking for scapegoats. And so it just sensitized me to psychological factors as being um, really important and trying to understand them. And then I was a young boy during the Cuban Missile Crisis where it seemed like uh, the reassurances we got in school about just hide under your desk, duck and cover, and bomb will go by and you could be okay, you know, that, that that wasn't actually reassuring. You know, kids these days get active shooter drills 
once school starts again. And but this was more not just they're going to come for the school, but the whole world. So that also sensitized me again to psychological factors that would lead towards, you know, potentially, you know, annihilating nuclear war. Um, and then the final step for me was uh, the Vietnam War. And so I became a draft resistor for the Vietnam War. I wasn't a conscientious objector, but again, that just sensitized me to um, irrational decision making and the need to really understand how people are motivated um, by their fears, by their anxieties, and, and how we define ourselves in these limited ways. And then when I first started taking psychedelics, which I had been dissuaded from through high school because I believed all the anti-drug propaganda. But when I first started taking it, I was just, these are incredible drugs. And I felt that the, um, what we're calling today, the ego dissolution, you know, the reduction of activity in the default mode network, the sense of self um, diminishing to be participating in this larger sense of self, uh, self with capital S, you know, this idea that we're all together, we're all um you could say uh, the collective insight, you know, <laughs> that, that we're all collective, that, that we're all part of this bigger thing. And that to me felt like the antidote to dehumanization, to genocide, to war, to trashing the environment. You know, this was around the same time of the environmental movement really ramping up and also the same time as, uh, you know, the moon landing and, you know, people looking back from space onto earth and seeing how it's all one thing and we're all together. And so it felt to me that psychedelics were the antidote to the struggles of the world. Not so much psychedelic, but the experience of this mystical sense of connection, which can come through meditation and other ways. But for thousands of years, people have really been working on it through psychedelics as one of the main most reliable approaches. And so when I realized that, and then I saw that all the research had been shut down and that there was a backlash and that the psychedelic 60s had been crushed and that Nixon was ramping up the war on drugs to go after the hippies and that, that I felt that there was something, um, well, it was particularly when um, Nixon said that, that uh, Timothy Leary was the most dangerous man in America. And so I started thinking, what is Timothy Leary doing right? <laughs> you know, that he's got Nixon being so negative. Um, and that really um, led me to think about why would Nixon be threatened by people trying to have these experiences? Well, they were motivated to oppose the war on drugs, to oppose, uh, I mean, not just the war on drugs, the war in Vietnam and other things as well. That, so I felt like there's something that seems established in the world that psychedelics can motivate people to be more involved in social justice movements and challenging the status quo. And the fact that it was suppressed made me think, well, this would be an important thing for me to focus my life on. So that was in 1972. Um, I was not balanced emotionally. My psychedelic tricks were very difficult. And that's where I felt like I needed to take time out for integration, for building myself. That basically um, took 10 years. So I dropped out of college. I did uh, uh, turn on, I did tune in, and I did drop out. But I always knew I was going to come back. So there was this 10 years of um, working on myself, getting grounded. And then I went back to college as a college freshman at age 28 um, in 1972. And that's where the very first semester I did at Esalen with off-campus study from New College of Florida. And that's where I learned about MDMA. So 
what, what I learned about MDMA, though, was that it was both a drug called Adam being used in um, quietly in therapeutic circles. It wasn't illegal, but it was kept quiet for fear that if it was going to be noticed, it would become illegal. So it was Adam, and around half a million doses had been used from the middle 70s to around the time that I started learning about it in 82. But it had also escaped those circles and had become ecstasy and was a pub, a, you know, a party drug used in the public setting. And so it was clear that it was doomed and that this was Nancy Reagan, just say no, the, again, the escalation of the drug war. And so I um, realized that I uh, understood about MDMA before the backlash. I really woke up to LSD after the backlash, but I understood MDMA before the backlash. And because it was legal, there was an opportunity to gather with some of the other uh, therapists, not that I was a therapist, but the therapist I was learning from, to try to prepare to defend the therapeutic use of MDMA once the crackdown came. So we had a year or so of preparation of introducing various people to MDMA who could be potential witnesses in a legal case. And then in 84, the DEA moved against MDMA. But they did so where you have 30-day comment period. They they published a rule in the Federal Register. There was 30 days to comment, to object to criminalizing ecstasy, what they said. And so I went to Washington with support of this other group with a nonprofit that I started before MAPS, Earth Metabolic Design Lab, which had been connected to Buckminster Fuller. And so um, we asked for a hearing. And in the end, we won the hearing. The administrative law judge only makes recommendations. And so the administrator of the DEA rejected the recommendation. And we won a couple times in the appeals courts, eventually lost. In any case, it was very clear that um, the only way to bring MDMA back, the only way to bring psychedelic research back at a time of such incredible negative propaganda, fear-based information, the only way to bring it back was through the FDA. And that the traditional routes of support for that, the National Institute of Mental Health, the National Institute on Drug Abuse, big foundations, the government, none of those were going to, nor were pharmaceutical companies going to pay for it either. I mean, these were drugs that weren't like traditional medications. They were drugs that helped psychotherapy and pharmaceutical companies know nothing about psychotherapy. They're just about giving you drugs. So, and it was stigmatized and they were selling other drugs that they preferred that were money makers for them in different ways. So in any case, the pharmaceutical companies, the big foundations, the government, there was no way to get money. And so it felt like the only way forward was to start a new group that would be a nonprofit pharmaceutical company. So that was the origins of MAPS in 86 with the goal to really try to um, do nonprofit psychedelic drug development through the FDA as a point of leverage even though at that time, um, psychedelic research was still squashed all over the world. Uh, but it felt like uh, there was no other strategy that I could think of. And because it felt to me like, um, you know, I, I just had the, um, well, I had dreams of Holocaust survivors, you know, telling me to do this, that this was uh, the, the antidote, like, like, we need to understand that we're all in it together. So let's flash forward right now to the coronavirus. We're doing this in the quarantine. I just did a presentation last week, uh, a PowerPoint presentation over Zoom, and I had one slide, and um, I had multiple slides, but one of the slides was catalyst of a sense of global connectedness. And on one side of the slide was the coronavirus. 
On the other side was a melting iceberg with a polar bear trying to find a place to land, global warming. And in the middle was the LSD molecule. So there are, there's an upside, you could say, about these uh, environmental crises um, and the virus that, that they help us all understand we are all woven together. You know, we can't have this fortress um, of America that's defended against um, everything else in the world. It's not going to work. There is no um, island utopia. It's one of my um, favorite authors is Aldous Huxley. And the book that he wrote uh, right before he died, the last book of his life, was called Island. And it was about an island utopia where they had integrated psychedelics into their fabric of life, into the training of young people. You would have these psychedelic experiences as you were growing up. You would have these vision quests, what you wanted to do with your life. It was this beautiful, idyllic uh, society on this island that had fully incorporated psychedelics. But while he was writing this, he ended up changing his mind about the, the novel. And so the novel ends with this utopian society being destroyed by the oil companies coming in to um, mine the island. So it's very much like the movie uh, Avatar, you know, where you've got mm -hmm. this beautiful society and they get destroyed by, um, you know, mining companies, basically. So the idea from island is that there is no island utopia, that the change has to happen from the inside out, from the heart of the beast. And what that meant to me, again, is this FDA-approved approach, that we need to go to the heart of the system and change things from inside out, but also that psychedelics can catalyze without the, the sort of fear of dying from the virus or of the fear from global warming of what it's going to mean with, you know, billion climate refugees potentially and, you know, mass extinctions and all of that, that, that if we can do this um, ego dissolution um, more voluntarily, more um, protected, more safe psychologically, then we will be better able to cope with the challenges that humanity is facing right now. So all of that has really led to the support interest in me in, in working with maps. And so even though it's been so hard, now it's 34 years of maps, but we're at this transition point. I mean, we're in the middle of phase three studies, the final level of studies. We've raised over $80 million of donations over these 34 years. And we have a bunch more money to raise, of course, to achieve our goal of mainstreaming um, nonprofit psychedelic um, medicine. Although, again, it's a little complicated in that we're constantly asking donors for money. And we want to demonstrate not just a new first-in-class psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy approval through the FDA, but we also want to demonstrate a new way to market drugs. So we are planning to make money on the sale of, sale of MDMA. But the money would all be used by the for the mission of the nonprofit. We have no investors. So, But we have a for-profit public benefit corporation the MAPS Public Benefit Corporation, that is our pharmaceutical arm. And it is 100% owned by the nonprofit. It's got about 55 people working there. And we are a drug development company focusing primarily on MDMA, but also we've done other work with, um, with um, marijuana, with LSD, with ayahuasca, uh, with Ibogaine. Um, and then we have roughly 25 people in the nonprofit. So we've got about 80 people, and we want to show that 
once we market MDMA, if, assuming we get approval from FDA, that we can market a drug in a way that maximizes public benefit, not profit. And then we hope that that will become a model for psychedelic medicine as it goes forward. Even with all these for-profit companies, we hope that they will uh, temper the uh, rapaciousness that comes from profit maximization and the um, ignoring external costs and really prioritizing um, public health. And I think you know many people have said that the American public health system is so warped out of all wisdom by the profit motive that we have more per capita expenses than any other company country in the world, but our outcomes are like down 40 or 50 among the countries. It's because this vast amount of uh, profit that's going to insurance companies and all sorts of people that are not connected to the direct healthcare. And we have uh, for-profit pharma companies that are just increasing the cost of their drugs to what the market were bear, not not about really maximizing public benefit. So in any case, we're trying to demonstrate, yes, we can make psychedelic psychotherapy into a medicine, but also there are a new way to market these drugs with public benefit. Now that's a problem in the sense that um, it makes it difficult, more difficult for us to raise capital. There, there's a bunch of for-profit companies. They tell these stories, investors are throwing money at them. Um, but you know, so it's harder for us to raise the money, but we get it without strings and without having to return it. Um, we'd be doing more research more quickly if we did have more money. But at the same time, I, I really am glad the way that we're trying to do it. Right. It's it's the long-term <laughs> gains. Yes. Yeah. So it sounds like MAPS has four primary goals around drug development um, and then sales, getting that out to people, FDA approval of those drugs, and then training. You have a physician training program, right, if I understand correctly, and then education, public education. Is that right? Are there other other yeah, goals some. and of MAPS? Yeah, yeah there are too. Yeah. So the first thing to say is that the um, training is not just physicians, it's therapists. And the way that um, we're negotiating with the FDA, they have, and also the DEA, um, the FDA has programs called REMS, which stands for Risk Evaluation and Mitigation Strategies. And that permits to come up with policies that are tailored to the risks of each particular drug. So in this case, the REMS that we have uh, proposed preliminary with the FDA is that the only people that can treat patients and the only people that can prescribe MDMA are people that have been through our training program. Because the treatment is not, here's the drug, the treatment is therapy enhanced by, assisted by the drug. So people need to understand the therapy to order to interact with the patients. And this is the concept so the around set and setting very much so, yes. Yeah, can you yes. describe uh, that? Well, that, that the um, Stan Groff, so is um, at this point, he's almost uh, 89, he's still 88. He's kind of the leading figure in psychedelic research. He helped start transpersonal psychology. Um, he's been my mentor. He's developed holotropic breath work, which is a way to um, use hyperventilation to bring out experiences similar to LSD. In any case, he has said that LSD is a non-specific amplifier of the unconscious. All right. So, and he's also said something else, which is that um, psychedelics are for the study of the mind, what the microscope is for biology and the telescope is for astronomy. 
But what he's saying is that these are just tools and they are tools that bring to the surface um, non-specifically what, what is emerging, that there's this sort of hypothesis of this inner healer, this inner wisdom, this psyche wanting to heal will bring things to the surface to try to um, integrate them with, with overall consciousness. And so what that means is that the set and the setting, the mindset that people go into this with and where they do it and who's there with them determines what happens during the experience more than just it's here's the drug and the drug will produce this. So it's fundamentally different than a tranquilizer, let's say. No matter where you take a tranquilizer or a sleeping pill. Or an antidepressant or an anxiolytic, a, a benzo. Yeah, those. Yeah, they don't focus on set and setting. They they sort of overwhelm all those things and they have this kind of re, more or less you know reliable effect. But psychedelics are not like that. So, just to contrast, um, use of psychedelics for um, parties, recreational use, you could say, versus therapeutic. In general, you could say that people who use drugs in a party setting are wanting to just have a good experience. They're wanting to have a good time. They want to select out the happy moments or the, the playful moments. And if something difficult comes up, memories of trauma, memories of um, mistakes that they've made, memories of broken relationships, broken heart, any of these things that come to the surface that are difficult in a recreational setting, that the set for people is they don't want to deal with that. And then they suppress those emotions or those thoughts and memories and they end up worse off. So the set, of somebody going to therapy is that whatever comes up, I will deal with it. That that's the instructions. That's the preparation. We don't know what's going to come up. We don't know the order that it's going to come up, but we do know that it's better to address it and acknowledge it than run away from it or to try to suppress it. Um, just as a, a quick, so that's about the, the set that as a quick comment about for-profit pharma, that there's a new company called Mind Medicine that's traded on the Toronto Stock Exchange. And they've just come out with something that I think betrays their their ignorance as far as um, psychedelic psychotherapy, but, but you could say also betrays their um, wisdom about how to make money on the stock market by telling a story. So they've bought some LSD data from a fellow, Matthias Lichty, at the University of Basel, and his intellectual property, and they, they're, they're claiming now that they're going to try to get a patent on a drug called Catanserin, which blocks an LSD trip. So they've just put out their big press release. This is a for-profit company saying the whole field has been held back because people are worried about bad trips. And so now we have this way to abort a psychedelic trip. And that's what the whole field has been waiting for. Now people will not have to worry about the bad trip. And well, first off, they didn't invent the idea of contancer and blocking LSD. It's been invented by other researchers years ago. So I don't know what they're talking about their patents. But the other important point is that the set of people going into therapy is, I will learn from these difficult experiences. Um, difficult is not the same as bad. That's part of our other work. We do harm reduction work with people at festivals in some of the cities now that have decriminalized mushrooms. We do work to educate the police, educate the hospitals, to try to prepare them to handle people that have difficult trips, that have the wrong set, you know, that are doing it just for fun. So I think that this idea that this 
for-profit company is selling this story that, oh, if something gets bad in a psychedelic trip, let's just abort it. That's what, but therapists don't do that. We don't tranquilize people. We, we support them through the difficult, they learn so much from that. And even if they can't get through it, they learn that they can endure it rather than run away from it. So it's a fundamentally misguided uh, idea, but it will attract certain investors, naive investors, and they'll throw their money at them for, oh, you've got a patent on how to abort a trip. In any case, that's the comment about set. Setting has to do with where you do it and who you do it with. And so um, you can actually make a therapeutic setting out of anywhere. You know, people just need to feel safe. They need to be supported. Uh, they need a bit of privacy. They need to be able to express themselves. So you need um, sometimes they need to scream or yell or cry or shake. You need a therapist that understands the way things manifest. Also, um, there's a fellow named uh, Dr. Bessel van der Kolk, who is an expert on PTSD. He's the principal investigator here of our Boston site. And he's written this incredible New York Times uh, bestselling book about PTSD called The Body Keeps the Score. And so a lot of times when we're not ready for a thought consciously, it comes to us in our body. And we know all about psychosomatic illnesses and, and psychedelics really open up this mind-body connection. So a lot of things come up in this um, into the body first as pains, as um, sort of symbols of something deeper that they're, they're helping people to get ready to address. So the setting must be conducive, ideally, for people to express what's happening in their body, even if it doesn't make rational sense, to let out noises, to shake, to be safe. It would look kind of frightening for a lot of people to see what goes on during an LSD experience where people are letting out these emotions that they've suppressed for a long time. Um, but anyway, that's the setting. And so we, we have taken people that have, uh, through our Zendo project, the Psychedelic Harm Reduction Project, you know, people that have taken psychedelics at Burning Man, at, El at other festivals, and we have a special setting where we bring people, uh, they come, and then we have one-on-one -on -one support, peer support, to help them process. And so that's another sort of comment on this idea that we need a drug to bring people down. We've taken people from incredibly frightened moments because the, their set and their setting was wrong, and they, they got overwhelmed, but then we can take them and, and help them. And many of these people really benefit an enormous amount from these things. So that's the set and setting discussion. Yeah. So it sounds like there's this inf invitation, you could say, to sort of face your fears or, or go towards something, asking the question of what does this have to teach me? How, how can I learn and grow from this versus avoiding something that might feel uncomfortable or, or what they're saying is bad? And this medication takes a lot of the power and, and potential benefit away from the experience. If you can just like quash it when it's uncomfortable, then you never get through it. You never get the benefit of getting to the other side. Yeah, very much so. And I think that the first words that you said make, are, are something we need to expand on, which was you said it's an invitation. So that so we don't use the word guide. We're not the guides. We don't know where people needs to go. And we, we invite them. You might want to do this. You might want to do that. We're not like you do this because the fundamental thing of our treatment manual, our treatment approach and the treatment manual is on the MAPS website under, um, if you go to the 
a menu bar research, MDMA, and then it's at the bottom of that page. It describes the therapeutic approach. The fundamental point of it is that we are helping people heal themselves. So it's a power dynamic that's often different in traditional psychiatry where the doctor heals you and you are this passive patient and the psychiatrist gives you the interpretation that you can't figure out yourself. That's kind of the Freudian thing that, that they're the all-knowing experts and you don't know who you are, but they will explain yourself to you and, you know, also... So they're the ones heal you. It's like that sometimes in shamanism where there's also that power dynamic. The shaman is the powerful one. So we're reversing that. That we want it's more like a midwife. You know, we're helping people give birth. We are not the ones doing the work. They're doing the work. We're helping them do the work. We're helping them heal themselves. And so the invitation is the way we do that. Um, as a, a literal example of that, the start of the session. The therapists never actually hand the drug to the person, even though the therapists are the ones that get the prescription. The therapists put the drug in a chalice or a cup or a bowl or something, and then from the very beginning, the person has to themselves take the capsule and ingest it so that they're choosing to do it. It's not like, here, let me put it in your hand or let me put it in your mouth. You've got to do that little step. So it's always this invitation is the essence of our therapeutic approach and support an invitation and an offer of support. So you've mentioned marijuana, MDMA, uh, you said tranquilizer. So I want to touch on ketamine. Um, and cause there's a, I want, I want you to describe, you know, we think of this as a, a horse tranquilizer, right? Um, but it's also used therapeutically and as a psychedelic. Um, you've mentioned ayahuasca and LSD. So I'm wondering how you categorize these. Is it, you know, are they all in one category because they're non-addictive or are they all in one category because they all, all are actually psychedelics or are the herbs and plant medicines or maybe even animal medicines, like you, you also mentioned ibogaine, um, and then the LSDs and ketamines and like the, the, I guess what we might call drugs or medicines, things that are made in a lab, are they in a different category? Like, how do you, how do you make sense of these and what do you use when and who uses what? And, and is some of it, you've already alluded to this, that you really cannot untie it from the legal and political context. Um, so is that another way that they get classified as just like what we have access to legally? How, how do you make sense of all of these? Yeah, well, well, there's a lot of questions in there. <laughs> it's really good. All right, so the the first thing I'll say is that there are a bunch of people that have this romantic, illogical notion that if it's from nature, it's good, and if it's from the lab, it's bad. So there is that one sense, one distinction that people made. Is it a natural plant medicine or is it synthetic? And if it's synthetic, it's somehow or other fundamentally different and somehow or other um, less trust, more suspicion. And if it's from nature, ignoring the fact that uh, poisonous snakes are from nature, poisonous mushrooms are from nature, there's all sorts of poisonous plants and buds and things that you can eat and die. Um, But nevertheless, um, so first off, I don't make a distinction between if it's natural or if it's synthetic. I think that the molecule is a molecule. I mean, the best example, I guess, that maybe a lot of people are familiar with is they'll talk about if you cook food with love, 
you know, somehow or other that that's different than um, Burger King or whatever. You know, so I, I think there is a way in which that's true, but I don't think that you're investing the molecules. People might even go to say that, that you're investing the molecules with a certain kind of love energy or such. Um, but I think that there's a certain love in synthetic drugs in the sense that you are striving for purity. You're striving for this um, incredibly high level, 99.99%, 99.98% of one single molecule. You're, you, there, there's a purity and a beauty to science in that you are trying to remove bias. You're trying to see the truth. You're trying to see what's really there. So I think there's um, a beauty and a holiness to science as well as to religion, as well as to nature. So anyway, we don't make those distinctions. At least I don't. Um, the other part of it is that um, we need to go back to the original meaning of the word psychedelic. And so that was in a discussion between um, Aldous Huxley and Humphrey Osmond. Humphrey Osmond was an LSD researcher who did a lot of work with LSD with alcoholics and was in a conversation with Huxley, and they were trying to come up with a name for these drugs. They knew that hallucinogens was kind of a negative pejorative name. The, the, there had been a previous name called psychotomimetic, which means mimic psychosis, which you know has some resemblances to it, but it's not the same. So they were trying to find a new name. And so um, Humphrey Osmond actually wrote a, a poem. They were exchanging poems back and forth, Humphrey Osmond and Aldous Huxley. And the poem that um, Humphrey Osmond wrote was, um, uh, let's see, to, um, let's see, to fathom hell or soar angelic, just take a pinch of psychedelic. And psychedelic, Delos is to reveal to manifest, and the psyche is the mind, the soul. So psychedelic means mind manifesting. And that's the reason that the, the word was created. Now, other people have come along more recently and said, oh, that's tainted by the 60s, that's a negative word, and let's come up with the word entheogen. So entheogen is the God within, to reveal mm -hmm. the God within. Hallucinogen is... Uh, it produces um, unreality, hallucinations, things that aren't really there. It's, it's a delusion. So where I feel on the spectrum of words is that hallucinogen is a negative word. Psychotomimetic is a negative word. But entheogen is also um, propaganda in the positive way because it's not always about revealing the God within. All sorts of psychodynamic things happen. Other things happen. So psychedelic aside from the cultural connotations, is the most descriptive, the most accurate to reveal the mind. So I, I'd say it's different in many cases than, um, let's say, stimulants, which speed up the mind, but they don't bring things to the surface. Tranquilizers um, calm the mind, bring you down, but they don't bring things up. Um, ketamine, which you mentioned, is actually called a dissociative anesthetic. And it's, it is used in veterinaries, it is used in horses, but it's also used in children and in humans. It's a very common drug. It's, in fact, the World Health Organization has uh, classified ketamine as one of the world's essential drugs because it can, in large doses, uh, produce an anesthesia 
but it doesn't interfere with respiration so that it can take you out of pain and you can be operated on um, with, and it's, it's very easy to inject. It, it just, you inject it into a muscle. You don't even need to get it into a vein or there's other ways you can snort it, but that it is safe because it doesn't interfere with respiration. But one tenth the anesthetic dose is a psychedelic dose. You have the, and, and as it turns out, um, you know, the, the whole idea of ketamine as a horse tranquilizer, as a kind of way to diminish what the drug is and it, to make people scared of it, um, it's used in animals because, again, it doesn't interfere with respiration. But there's something called the emergent phenomena with ketamine, which is that people get um, a dose that's sufficient for anesthesia, they get operated on, but as the drug wears off, when they finally get through this um, heavy amount and the body is metabolizing it, you get to like one-tenth the level where you can start to remember things, you pass through a psychedelic phase. And anesthesiologists don't prepare their patients for that, generally. And so adults have a harder time dealing as they come down with this psychedelic phase. But children who are more imaginative, uh, you know, unsure exactly what's real, what's not, they can handle it. So ketamine has tended to be used now more in children for operations than in adults because the children can handle this emergent phenomena better than the adults. So I consider um, meditation psychedelic. Holotropic breathwork is psychedelic. So I, I, I use the word in as broad a, a way as possible. Now, other people will say that there's the classic psychedelics like LSD, like psilocybin, like mescaline, that dissolve the ego in a certain way, that are ego dissolution drugs, and that MDMA is not like that. MDMA is down, and it's true, MDMA is not like the classic psychedelics. And so some people have said, oh, we should call it, um, well, um, I think it was Dave Nichols said that it should be um, an intactogen to touch within. Ralph Metzner said an empathogen to bring out empathy. Um, the, there's different ways, and that was more of a political strategy also to say it's not psychedelic, therefore we should have a different regulatory system. It shouldn't be just automatically criminalized like other psychedelics. Um, but we can argue about you know what the word should mean, and people could come up with their own definitions, but I felt like gay and queer and all of that, that, that I wanted to take words that had a stigma and change them and to, to reclaim them. And I, I'd say that we pretty much have reclaimed the word psychedelic. It doesn't have, I'm going to go live on a commune connotations. It's not like I'm going to go protest in the streets. Um, it's, it's not like I'm a counterculture dropout. So psychedelic is interesting for people. It's visual, it's beautiful, imaginative. And so I think we've done a good job of reclaiming it. And also I've tried to, at least for us, for the multidisciplinary association for psychedelic studies, have just interpreted the word as broadly as as possible. So Michael Pollan wrote the book How to Change Your Mind, and that was published a year and a half, two years ago. What role, what like influence did that have on maps or on on kind of the scope of things? Certainly, when he wrote Omnivore's Dilemma and when he was writing a lot about the food industry, I felt like he was one of the people that really shifted that conversation into the mainstream. And this idea that he could do that potentially for psychedelics was quite exciting. Did you did you see a shift? Like you have your finger on the pulse and have for decades here. Did that make any difference? Yeah. Well, 
there's two different um, cultural turning points that I would say, um, looking back. Well, let, let me say three. So, you know, MAPS was started in 86. So the, the first cultural turning point really took place in 1992. And that was when the FDA and their division of psychiatry products, when the FDA had a formal um, um, advisory committee and they met to determine whether they would open the door to psychedelic research or not. And they decided that they would. So that was the key turning point. And all of the psychedelic renaissance that is happening now with more research with psychedelics than at any time in the last 50 years, that stems back to that decision by the FDA. So that was a crucial turning point. The other turning point was in 2003, and that was sort of the high watermark of the frenzy of fear-based propaganda about MDMA causing neurotoxicity and brain damage. And so this idea was George Riccardi, funded by NIDA, the Nationalist on Drug Abuse was one of the main researchers at Johns Hopkins. They tried to make a case to justify prohibition that one dose of MDMA would cause such significant neurotoxicity of the serotonin system that it would cause functional consequences and brain damage and that it should never even be studied. We already know that it's so terrible that it should never even be studied. And in fact, George Riccardi tried to block people from doing research in MDMA-naive people to see if it really did cause this kind of um, serotonin changes. And as it turned out, it did not. But George was trying to stop people from doing the research that would disprove his fear-based propaganda. And so what happened in 2003, that, I mean, that was from, I'd say, 85 when the DEA criminalized MDMA on an emergency basis while our hearings were still going on. Um, through the 80s, through the 90s, this fear-based propaganda of uh, MDMA was just rampant. But in 2003, what happened was that Peter Jennings, uh, the newscaster from ABC, um, did a special, an hour special called Ecstasy Rising. And it was the first balanced portrayal of MDMA. It was absolutely incredible. It was so good that the drug czar's office at the White House tried to block ABC from releasing it. They had an advanced copy of it. They had Congress members of Congress, various people tried to contact the president of ABC. We know this now in retrospect because they've released this information, but they tried to block this documentary from coming out. And so uh, they were unsuccessful, fortunately, and the documentary shift public attitudes. And at the same time, George Riccardi had made a fundamental mistake in that he had published a paper that claimed that MDMA not just hurt serotonin, but now all of a sudden hurt dopamine and could cause Parkinson's. And this was published in Science, which is one of the, Science and Nature are the two main journals in science, um, in, in the scientific field. And so it's one of the most reputable journals. Um, the editor of the, the, it was published by the American Association for the Advancement of Science, the president of that was um, someone who had previously been the head of the National Institute on Drug Abuse and had been funding George Riccardi's research. And so science published this dubious paper. And also uh, there was an editorial that was there. Alan Leshner was the um, head of AAAS. He, he wrote an editorial saying, taking MDMA is like Russian roulette. As it turned out, um, 
it didn't make sense. We we challenged this. The, the whole research killed a bunch of monkeys. Didn't make sense. Any case, um, they had to eventually withdraw the study because they'd made a mistake. They had given methamphetamine to these animals instead of MDMA. So it's one of the biggest scandals in science. They killed loads of animals. They spent mega, mega million dollars. They tried to exaggerate their findings. They should have known it wasn't. So it was the combination of the Peter Jennings um, special and this retraction of this fallacious article it changed everything. And so since then, we have not really, um, we, we've done work on neurotoxicity, but nobody really believes now that one dose of MDMA is going to cause permanent brain damage and it's so terrible. So that was a real cultural turning point. Okay, the next and third cultural turning point is Michael Pollan's book. And so it's had an enormous effect on reaching out to people that we would not otherwise be able to reach. And, you know, because his books have been about health and healing and food, for him to now come out with this new book about psychedelics, it made people question, are these really poisonous treatments that are going to drive people mad and cause terrible brain damage or, you know, so. And the other big point about Michael's book, which um, is very significant, but I think most people don't even notice it but that he began the book as Michael Pollan. He had all these experiences and he ends the book as Michael Pollan. He doesn't get divorced. He doesn't uh, drop out to live on a commune. He doesn't decide, hey, this writing stuff is bullshit. I'm gonna go um, you know, meditate on a mountaintop and withdraw and get divorced and live, you know, I'm going to India and I'm gonna find my guru. You know, he doesn't do any of that. He's Michael Pollan. He has these experiences that deepen his experience of life and he's still Michael Pollan. So that gets us over this whole arc of psychedelics, counterculture, dropout. And so I think Michael's book has reached a, an enormous number of people in the mainstream that we would never have otherwise been able to reach who value what he says. And it's been a, a cultural watershed. So what's changed at MAPS um, because of that? Are, have you noticed more funding? Has there been a shift in your relationship with the FDA? Are there like concrete on the ground changes that have happened? I I certainly personally, as a clinician, I you know am interested in this. I specialize in mental health and, and the and brain. Um, and there was that Eslin event at the weekend, um, and I got my name in the hat as fast as possible, <laughs> along with 10,000 other people who were interested. Um, and so I know from my perspective as a clinician, there's been a lot more interest. Um, I'm just wondering, like, at MAPS, if what the concrete changes you've seen since then have been. Yeah. Well, first off, there's been more people from more mainstream willing to talk to us about donations. Yeah, so it, it sort of destigmatized the field a lot. Um, it didn't really change our attitude with FDA because FDA since 1992 has been more science based rather than um, drug war based or fear based. So um, the book didn't really change what we're doing with FDA, but it changed the climate. Um, one of the things that we've been trying to do since 1990, so it's now 30 years has been to try to do research inside the Veterans Administration. There's over a million veterans right now receiving disability payments for PTSD. It costs the VA somewhere in the neighborhood of 15 to $20 billion a year in one year 
And these are mostly young people. It's going to be the next 40 years or more. So it's an enormous cost. But the VA has been resistant because of social stigma uh, of, of getting involved with us in ways. It's been very, very difficult to get the VA involved. Um, however, any day now, we are waiting on um, a reply from FDA about a protocol that we've submitted to take place inside the Bronx VA with the researcher, Dr. Dr. Rachel Yehuda. And we anticipate likely to get good news. So I think Michael Pollan's book has created a climate along with our data and along with the, the fact that FDA has declared MDMA a breakthrough therapy, that we're getting really good results. All of that has created a climate where now even the day will look. And I think that that has to do with Michael Pollan's book in some ways. Um, there, there's more people willing to acknowledge that psychedelics have enormous healing potential. Um, and we've been able to reach out to um, family foundations, other people that would, would previously have been running the other way. So just to, to give you an example of a sad story, the, the largest foundation in England, it's got about $40 billion, is called the Wellcome Trust. And it was started by a pharmaceutical company. And it's focused on neuroscience and trying to understand the brain. And we went there to um, multiple times over the last um, 15 years or so, but um, Welcome Trust um, said, we're not giving you a penny. Um, it's a reputational risk. And I said, it's a reputational opportunity for you to be a pioneer, to help bring this field back. And so they were not interested. So. I think eventually the Welcome Trust may actually come around, and if so, it will be in part due to the kind of uh, climate change, you can say, that Michael Pollan's book has created uh, towards attitudes towards psychedelic research. So you mentioned the cost to like the VA of having PTSD, um, but there's also, I think, this this other cost to society, right? It's that these these individuals, I've worked with a couple of special forces vets who've had PTSD, um, not on the psychedelic side, but they've been interested in that and, and doing some of that. I work more on the functional medicine side to support them nutritionally and um, getting toxins out, all, all the things that I, the pieces that I can add value. Um, but the other big cost, I think that we don't always acknowledge is that here are these incredible human beings who are typically young, very effective, right? They're, they're these amazing athletes, academically very strong, you know, psychologically very strong. We send them into combat and they come back like, quote unquote, broken. And uh -huh. so now you have these people who could be contributing to society in very real ways, contribute, like creating families, contributing to their communities, and they have PTSD and they, they they are almost completely debilitated in some cases. And if we could harness that value that maybe you can't put a dollar amount on it. Oh, but, right, right. But there's this other big cost of PTSD, of anxiety, of depression, that it inhibits people from reaching their full potential of what they have to give. And that psychedelics are this an incredible opportunity to sort of reclaim that, to get that back. Um, and you've talked about, you know, of course, coronavirus right now and climate change for this generation, the next, you know, uh, that we all collectively have to face. And who are these people that could come up with potential solutions who are, are hiding under these de debilitating conditions? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, the, the other thing is their families. 
So it doesn't just affect them. It affects their families, their communities. So one of the most important studies that we've done, and actually the first one that we were able to do with VA-affiliated researchers, was a, a project, a, an approach to treating PTSD that's called cognitive behavioral conjoint therapy. Conjoint meaning dyads or couples. And it's where you bring the person with PTSD and their significant other or a, a uh, relative, somebody that they're in a, in a close relationship within, and then they both go through the treatment together. So that's cognitive behavioral conjoint therapy. And so we did a project blending MDMA with cognitive behavioral conjoint therapy, where both members of this dyad, the PTSD patient and their uh, close um, person that they're close with, um, they both get MDMA. And it was tremendously helpful in that regard. So I think that it's very true that these people are um, incredible potential, these people that are coming back. A lot of them are not just suffering from um, seeing death and destruction so close, but it's also moral injury. And I think that's the part that's being talked about now more in the military, which is that when you don't believe in the mission, when the mission is um, politically engineered by you know, President Bush to invade Iraq for reasons that don't really make um, sense other than selfishly for him. And it's not helping the country. And so, and, and we win the territory, we give it back, the Taliban are still around, Afghanistan, they're still suppressing, you know, we, we, what have we accomplished in Iraq and Afghanistan other than sowing an enormous amount of chaos, disrupting the world? It's, it's been a, a negative disaster for the United States. And I think the veterans, when they're there, they realize that. I mean, that was similar what happened in Vietnam, is that what is this war really for and why are we there? So I think there's this um, dual kind of aspect to the treatment which is a lot of these people have lost trust in their leadership, in the values of the country, and why they volunteered for the military in the first place. A lot of these people really had idealistic, patriotic uh, thoughts in mind that they were going to protect us. It's a dangerous world. We need a military. And at the same time, then they do things that they see are mostly destructive or for certain companies to make money. and It's just a terrible thing. So in any case, I think that um, the therapy that – um, we can offer to people with PTSD, whether it's uh, war-related or not. Now, I think the veterans get way more attention, but the VA just put out a statement saying that there's 8 million PTSD patients in the United States at any one time. We've got a million vets on disability for PTSD. So most of the sufferers are women who've been sexually abused, who've been domestic violence. There's a whole bunch uh, people that are from accidents, there's PTSD from um, medical procedures, cancer patients, some of them have PTSD, but the, the veterans get most of the attention because they're a national tragedy. We've got the, now the latest estimate is 17 a day committing suicide, a lot of them from PTSD. So I think that the treatment can restore them to life and not just save money from disability payments, but take people who had an incredible amount of potential and restore their ability to be engaged in the world. And so that's what we're saying is, is very possible. And we've seen it happen a lot of times. And that, that's what we have to prove in phase three. And that's what we're in the midst of. I'm curious about the age. So from my perspective as a clinician, 
I would worry about introducing uh, psychedelics to a developing brain. Part of me wants to say, hold on, let's wait until this human is 25, 26, and then they can experience some of these psychedelic um, trips or, or therapeutics. But while they're 17, 18, or, or like you mentioned, ketamine for kids when they're undergoing anesthesia, I just... My concern is that something we might interfere with something that's happening naturally, and um, and have there could be unintended consequences. Can you can you speak to that? Can I rest yeah, easy? I, I would say that yes, you can rest easy, and I'd also say that that you have been um, the victim of uh, propaganda designed to sustain the war on drugs. And that this idea that we have to stay away from a developing brain. And, you know, so first off, let's, um, there, there's multiple different ways I can address this. But first off, let me say that those cultures that have successfully integrated psychedelics, the Native American church, there's half a million members of the Native American church that use peyote here in America. There's the ayahuasca churches. Uh, throughout South America. There's the Huichol Indians that use peyote. There's the groups that have used mushrooms in Mexico. That all of the cultures that have successfully integrated psychedelics do not have an age limit. And in fact, a lot of the women give birth while they're on the psychedelics. They they are nursing while they're on the psychedelics. Their kid, I went to a Native American peyote ceremony, Native American church ceremony, and one of the Navajo Indians brought his nine-year-old son who took a half a dose of peyote or so, less than we did, but stayed up all night. So the idea that this developing brain, let me flip that around to say that if you could layer in connections to spirituality, connections to love at an early age, isn't that a good thing? The other thing to say is that um, the FDA knows that a lot of drugs are tested in adults but are never tested in children and they are then prescribed in children without enough evidence. So the FDA is now encouraging sponsors to do research in adolescents if their research works out in adults. And so that's happening to us as well. So the FDA has required us, if we succeed in adults, we have to work with 12 to 17 year olds who are traumatized. So the other part of this discussion is to say that if you are a traumatized child, your brain is warped. You are already not normally the way a normal brain would grow till you're 25. The trauma that you've experienced has changed your brain. We have evidence of that from uh, brain scans, from uh, trauma patients, hyperactive amygdala, reduced activity in the prefrontal cortex, reduced connectivity between the hippocampus where memories are put into long-term storage and amygdala. So people's brains are warped already if they're traumatized children. So actually this idea that somehow or other there's this natural process of aging that we need to stay away from, you know, tell that to all the doctors who are all the psychiatrists who are prescribing Adderall and methamphetamine stimulant drugs to kids for ADHD. Are they saying, oh my God, these kids, we, we can't medicate them till they're 25. No, we have massive amount of psychiatrists medicating, over-medicating kids 
a lot of them who don't even have ADHD. They're just hyperactive or whatever. And I think that's where my sort of caution comes from is as a clinician, seeing so many kids and then young adults who have been prescribed Adderall or antidepressants or, yeah. you yeah. know, these amphetamines. I, I thought it was interesting. You were talking about that science paper and that they were actually, instead of using MDMA, they were using methamphetamine and they right. were saying how toxic it was. But here we are when amphetamines are prescribed like candy. People are on on Adderall and and Vance and all, I see people coming yeah. in all day long on amphetamines, not realizing this is an amphetamine because it's got some other fancy drug name. And yeah. here it's been proven how dangerous that is, but psychedelics are sidelined, right? Um, yeah. yeah. So, so in that case, I would say, yes, I mean, a lot of kids are way over medicated, you know, and that can inhibit. But the difference here is that the drugs we've just been talking about that, that kids are getting Adderall, they get them on a daily basis. For years and years, we're talking about a few uses of psychedelics to enhance psychotherapy with the goal of making people independent of the psychedelics. It's a, so it's, the, it's a fundamental difference between for-profit pharma in general that wants people on drugs for a long period of time and nonprofit, but also it's a fundamental difference between psychedelic psychotherapy and standard psychopharmacology. Which is this theory that we're um, trying to uh, correct a biochemical deficit, and therefore you need a chemical on a daily basis for the rest, uh, the next decade or whatever, longer. Many times people are on antidepressants for 30, 40 years. So it's a fundamentally different approach. And so I do have those um, yeah concerns that we over medicate. But I don't believe that when you work with um, traumatized children, for example, if we if we succeed with 12 to 17 year olds, we are being required to work with seven to 11 year olds who are traumatized. All right, but let, let's take that apart and talk about healthy healthy kids. Even healthy kids, the evidence is that traditional cultures sometimes have situations where kids, as they're growing up, have these experiences. Now, I'll just say that one of the turning points in my life, looking back in retrospect, was my bar mitzvah when I turned 13. And it was a failure. It failed to um, turn me into a man. It failed to connect me to God. It failed. And a lot of us have these traditional rites of passage that were when we're 12 or when we're 13 or when we're 15, that, that that's a big thing. In, um, in religions and cultures is these rites of passage but they for adolescents, but they don't have the same power that they used to. And so I felt when I was 13, I wanted a spiritual connection. I think if I would have given at my bar mitzvah, you know, if, if the uh, party would have involved everybody doing MDMA, you know, it would have been way better and more spiritual. And that, so I, I, I just, think that you look at these rites of passage that are set up for adolescents and they don't work anymore. But the, the core idea is that we need these rites of passage and psychedelics can do that for adolescents. The, just to reduce a certain amount of controversy from some of the people that may be listening to this now is to say that I believe that psychedelics should be legal for adults, but illegal for children, unless you have your parents' permission. There should be a parental override to laws against minors. And what most people are not aware of is that in the United States, 23 states have parental override for laws against the use of alcohol by minors. 
states, parents give alcohol to their kids at a restaurant, out in public, at home, anywhere, because the family has been given this authority by these laws to override the rules against minors. So I think that's the way it should be with psychedelics. There should be a parental. And in this way, we are the party of family values. We are saying who should make this decision about what children are exposed to as they're growing up when it comes to psychedelics. Should it be the government that tells everybody no, or should it be the family that decides how they want to educate their kids? And so we are pro-family, and I just wish that the um, various parents groups and families, uh, you know, groups that are anti-drug would join with us on endorsing this family-friendly policy of a parental override to drug laws against uh, use by minors. I want to talk a little bit about the distinction between using psychedelics therapeutically versus using them for optimization. Can you mm-hmm. speak to yeah. that? Yeah, I think that um, we need mass mental health. In general, we have a mental health crisis all over the world, and I think you can see that in America, that under stress, under economic stress, or stress of a war or invasion, or stress of coronavirus, or background stress of global warming, to the extent that people are empathic at all, that people shut down rationality and are motivated more and more by kind of irrational factors. So we need mass mental health, and not all these people that are subject to this stress and you know, have a diagnosis of PTSD, or necessarily a diagnosis of depression or anxiety. But we all have sort of low-level aspects of that, and some of us have higher levels. So there still is that, that part about um, still bringing people back to normal. But I think taking healthy people and making them healthier, or optimization, I think that that's essential. And I think that what we need is drug policy reform so that while we have a strategy of medicalization for clinical illnesses, for personal growth, we're not going to be able to get the FDA to approve MDMA for personal growth. MDMA is phenomenal for couples therapy, but we're not going to be able to get FDA to approve MDMA for couples therapy because it's not a disease. So I think that this optimization is what people have used psychedelics for also for thousands of years. That I think it, but it will require drug policy reform. We're not going to medicalize for optimization because it's just a different context. So does that happen with the DEA, say, versus the FDA? Well, no, the DEA just does what it's told. That has to do with Congress, with um you know, initiatives with with various expressions of public support. The DEA is not going to say, oh, yeah, let's get rid of the DEA. We don't need it. You know, they're um, too invested in what they're doing. But I think that um, we will need overall drug policy reform. And what we really need to do is take drug policy out of the criminal justice system and put it into the mental health system. Drug abuse is not a crime. Selling, it's... um, an illness that, that we need to help people uh, through humane support rather than, and the drug war has never been about reducing drug abuse. It's never once been about reducing drug abuse. It's about suppression of minorities. It's about uh, financial interests for people. Why, why does marijuana become illegal shortly after the alcohol prohibition ends? We had enormous amount of prohibition agents looking for something new to do. 
We had people, um, Harry Anslinger, trying to build a political fiefdom, and he, he became, you know, quite powerful through um, the laws against marijuana and then against other drugs. So it's always been about ulterior motives. It's never been about drug abuse. Certainly in my practice clinically, whenever I see that there's a familial history of substance abuse, my, again, like invitation is to view that as someone who's looking to self-medicate, somebody who's uncomfortable, who's looking to feel more comfortable versus somebody with some moral issue or, you know, some legal issue, right? It's not that they are broken or that they have something wrong with them. They're just looking for that relief, and so if we could do this in a way that's it's more empowering, how amazing. Yeah, I think so. And I, I think that, um, you know, Bob Jesse has called it the betterment of well people. You know, yeah, and I think it's completely it. And we need to create a context for that. And it won't be through FDA. And I also think it shouldn't be through religion. I mean, we do have religious freedom for the Native American church. We have religious freedom for several ayahuasca churches to do their practices in the United States. But individuals should not have to be part of a religious group to legally have access, nor should they have to have a medical disease. And what about the cultural appropriation around this, right? There's um, people who have argued that if you want to do ayahuasca, you should go to Peru and do it with a shaman in Peru, where it's culturally appropriate. And if you want to do ibogaine, you should go to where that is locally, you know, endemic. And if, uh, what are your thoughts? Right. Well, let, let me just say this. Okay, so somehow or other, you go down to uh, Brazil or Peru, let's say, and you want to go to a shaman. Chances are that shaman has a telephone, a smartphone. Let's say you go to Ibogaine and you want to go working with the Buides who developed the, uh, the Buidi religion using Iboga. Those people also have phones, right? They have taken technology from the West and they have adapted it to their own uses. So similarly, I believe it's you can have respect without having to slavishly copy something from one tradition into another and use it in the same way. So I don't believe that it's cultural appropriation to take a substance and use it in a different context. So let me say that as a reformed Jew, that the way that I was trained is that it's the obligation of reformed Jews to look at the tradition and reinterpret it for modern times. So, for example, um, it's not quite reform, but there's another group called Reconstructionist that in the 1920s said all of a sudden girls can get bat mitzvah. So for roughly 5,000 years of Jewish history, uh, girls could not have a bat mitzvah. It was only men. Somehow or other, that changed. And now, do we think it's weird or do we say, hey, that's inappropriate? Well, yeah, the Orthodox say, no, you can't have girls have bat mitzvahs. But it's our obligation to adapt things for our own unique context, not just to slavishly transmit from one generation to the other the same thing. So I believe that ayahuasca um, is something that we need to appreciate where it came from, ideally give some uh, rewards back to the people that developed it, but that it's part of the world's history. It's part of the, the nature's gift to everybody. It's not owned by them. 
it's and the same way if we look at all the research that's going on now with psilocybin it's all synthetic psilocybin mm -hmm. and it's being given without the mazatec ceremonies there was a study in brazil of ayahuasca for depression that was very effective but they gave the ayahuasca without any religious ceremony so even in brazil they're taking ayahuasca out of the traditional setting and using it in a Western medical setting. So are those Brazilians now? Let's say we're appropriating it from those Brazilians rather than the indigenous, you know, and it's not indigenous anymore in Brazil or Peru that are using ayahuasca either. It's made it to the mainstream, to the West, to the cities. So I, I fundamentally um, am um, in disagreement with those people that say that these substances should only be used in the other context. Now, let me just add this, that the churches in Brazil and in ayahuasca are called syncretic churches, the ones that use ayahuasca, meaning that they were dominated and suppressed by the Catholic Church. And so they've had to make accommodations to the Catholic Church. So these are not like these pristine things come out of nature and this is the way they are. They're homophobic, patriarchal, hierarchical. They are not like the kind of examples that we would say are part of sort of Western progressive culture. So we should adopt them the way they are, where only men can be shamans or, you know, I mean, there are women shamans too sometimes, but these religious contexts are not like this pure, beautiful from nature and we got to keep them exactly the way they are. Yeah, thank you for speaking to that. Can you speak a little to the state of the research? So. Certainly depression um, is a big one and end of life care. But there's a bunch of places where psychedelics have performed really unbelievably well, especially when compared to the standard of care for treating things like depression. Can you speak to kind of where that is right now? Yeah, yeah. So I'll, I'll speak about two things. So there's the MDMA for post-traumatic stress disorder, and that's been declared a breakthrough therapy by the FDA, and then there's psilocybin for treatment-resistant depression has been declared a breakthrough therapy by FDA for a for-profit company called Compass, and then there's a non-profit company called USONA that's trying to develop psilocybin for major depressive disorder. That has also gotten breakthrough therapy status from the FDA. So MAPS um, is in phase three studies. Can you describe what a breakthrough therapy means? Ah, yeah, yeah. So um, the most important designation you can get from FDA is breakthrough therapy. It's for the most promising drugs. And what that means is that roughly two-thirds, Big Pharma wants all of their drugs to be considered a breakthrough, but two-thirds of the applications to FDA for breakthrough therapy designation are rejected because they're not real breakthroughs. So these are drugs that show promise to either bring a whole new population that didn't have a medicine available for them, or there was a medicine, but there were a lot of people that failed on obtaining relief, and that this new drug, based on the early data, is considered a potential breakthrough. So you get breakthrough therapy designation. And what that means practically is that you have more meetings with the FDA, shorter time frames. Um, they prioritize the development of these breakthrough drugs. And there's even regulatory competition between the European Medicines Agency and FDA, who can approve the most new breakthrough drugs. And so MAPS was able to open the door to MDMA becoming a breakthrough drug 
for PTSD, and that eased the way for psilocybin to become a breakthrough therapy. But because from the very beginning, my um, strategic analysis was that we need to medicalize these drugs. A lot of the early work began with psilocybin by people that were more academic researchers, and they wanted to understand how does it work, and they didn't understand that there's a fundamental difference between drug development research and academic research. There's different ways to design the studies, different ways to monitor the data, different negotiations you have with FDA, if you just want to find out stuff or if you want to make a drug into a medicine. So MAPS is ahead of the game. We're the leading edge, and we are now, we think, by the end of 2021, we think we'll have gathered all the phase three data that we need if we get the money that we need to raise. And we think that uh, psilocybin is probably uh, 21 year or two years behind us. So the psilocybin groups are still in phase two. And we are now um, maybe one third of the way, well, maybe 40% of the way through um, phase three. Fantastic. So in the context of COVID-19, do you see psychedelics having a role to play in our collective recovery from this trauma? Yeah, very much so. Although it's going to be very difficult because, again, we have to make this distinction between what's happening in research and what's happening in the culture, some of which may be um, illegal. So I think that um, we're... In order to demonstrate that MDMA is a medicine, we are working with the hardest cases. So we're working with chronic, severe treat, uh, PTSD, most of whom are, are treatment resistant. A lot of the people that are now getting traumatized from the COVID are healthcare workers, first responders, but a large number of them will recover and not develop you know, classic PTSD. There will be a fraction that do, and often they've had series of traumas, and this one was just the one that pushes them over the edge. So we will try to be reaching out to um, first responders in all different ways. They can already join our studies. I think that as preventative medicine, that's unfortunately for now going to have to be, um, people have to do that on their own illegally. Mm. But if it were something that, let's say Congress in their, um, (laughs) if they were wise, they, let's say they put in a billion dollars towards uh, treating healthcare workers who've sacrificed so much, who've seen their associates die from the virus, who, who are worried about getting the virus themselves. If they were to give everybody an MDMA experience for preventative medicine, pay for it, we would have a vastly reduced problem of PTSD. And also people would be able to get back into life more. Get They would overcome a lot of these traumas that are below the level of actual PTSD. So, yeah. The other part of it is that um, this idea that we're all interconnected, people are realizing that more. And I think you can um, see that through psychedelics. It's, it's a very effective way to go beyond your individual self and feel that global connectivity so that I think psychedelics can inspire people, can help them. I think they could play a major role, but it, it's really we're too far behind sort of in this medicalization, legalization struggle to make it widespread. Um, tragically, but I think that for those people that seek it out, if they have the right set and setting, if they have drugs that are really pure, I think uh, psychedelics can do a lot of good. Just one more quick question, briefly. Yeah. yeah. The next milestone. So, if it's a decade out or so, or five, ten years, oh, what no, do you see that being? Oh, the next big milestone. Well, it'll be the um, approval. 
which we think will be 2022 is the next big milestone. Fantastic. Then, then will be um, you know thousands of psychedelic clinics. Hmm. So like you can really have an impact. Yeah, yeah, setting up thousands. Of, and these will be ketamine and MDMA and psilocybin eventually, and eventually ayahuasca and other things too. Thank yeah. you so much, Rick. Yeah. It's just been an absolute pleasure to have you on today. Um, thank you for sharing your insights and this, this cultural perspective, this yeah. historical perspective. It's been a pleasure. Oh, it's been, I really enjoyed it. Thank you so much. Okay. Thank you for being with us for this conversation with Rick Doblin. If you didn't know already, one of the other things we do in the collective is create supplements for better cognition, better aging, and more energy. If you're looking for any or all of that, go to neurohacker.com to learn more. And as our gift to you, we're offering an additional 15% off your first order using the code PODCAST70. If you have questions about this content, please leave them on our site at neurohacker.com podcast, and we'll work to get those answered on a future episode. Make sure to leave us a five-star review and subscribe to our podcast. We'll see you next time.